Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. As well as being an interdisciplinary researcher by nature, I am a practicing Jungian analyst. A few announcements. Firstly, these podcasts now have a frequency of once a month, scheduled for release around the middle of the month. Secondly, I had intended to begin this 2023 podcast series with an exploration of the Twelve Horsemen, the mega-threats of the 21st century. This will now start in a few episodes' time. First, I wish to complete a mini-series on Young's Commentaries on the Orient, and I begin with his two commentaries on Tibetan texts, in which, as with the I Ching and the Secret of the Golden Flower, Young attempts, once again, to build a bridge between East and West, specifically between the spiritual perspective of the ancient traditions of the Orient and modern Western depth psychology, by which he meant his own school of analytical psychology. These were very early attempts to build such bridges and were not entirely successful, unsurprising given the paucity of good translations and the like. But that intention to forge a viable understanding between Eastern spiritual insight and practice and a Western psychology that includes the unconscious, is as important now as it was a hundred years ago. This is a synthesis, in my view, urgently required to answer the contemporary world crisis, and is one the West is groping its way towards instinctively. That is, many, many people have adopted Eastern spiritual practices in the West, and have increasingly incorporated the findings of depth psychology, Thirdly, the 2023 Quest Lecture Series has begun. It started at the end of January with an examination of the topic Is the West in Decline? Our next lecture will be in a few weeks' time, February the 25th. Its title is What has Jungian Psychology to Offer the 21st Century? It is now possible to register for a single lecture, not just the whole series, if you are interested, please contact me at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or find my contact details at www.alamulhern.com. Let us begin. Our subject today is Young and Tibetan Buddhism. Walter Evans Vence was a traveller in the Indian subcontinent in the early 20th century. He came across a number of religious works in Tibet, and although he did not speak Tibetan, he managed to get them translated by one means or another. He was the editor of a series of Tibetan texts that he introduced to the West. These included two works for which Young gave psychological commentaries. The most well-known of these is what Evans Vents called the Tibetan Book of the Dead, published in English in 1927, and known in Tibet as the Bardo Thirdal. Young wrote a psychological commentary for its 1935 edition. The second work we are considering is the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, unknown to the West until its first publication in 1954. Young had actually written a psychological commentary for this in 1939, Presumably the delay between 1939 and 1954 was because of World War II. Evans Vence played a similar role with these books 
as did Richard Wilhelm with respect to the Taoist books, the I Ching and the Secret of the Golden Flower. Both men were Westerners, Richard Wilhelm was German, and Evans Ventz was American, though his father was German. Both were born in the 1870s, as was Young. Both travelled in the Orient in the early part of the 19th century and became deeply immersed in the countries of their choice, China and Tibet. Both discovered ancient texts in the first decades of the 20th century. Both were to offer the first translations of these books to the West and both had the good fortune of having Young's commentaries to promote their books. Both these men were spiritual pioneers, bringing the East to the West, and Young was one of their conduits in this process. It is probable that his growing reputation over the decades helped these translations gain popularity. Young's psychological commentaries for Chinese or Tibetan texts all aimed at building a bridge from an unfamiliar Eastern religion to a Western psychology. Although Young was pioneering analytical psychology himself, such was his confidence that he frequently referred to similarities between these Oriental spiritual works and Western psychology, by which he meant his own school of analytical psychology. He was not, then, referring to the school of behaviourism or the depth psychology of Freudian psychoanalysis. Moreover, the reader of these works in English should be aware of the pioneering nature of these translations and publications. Both Evans Ventz in Tibet and Wilhelm in China came across these works by chance, intuited their importance and devoted themselves to presenting them to the West. Naturally, there are many problems with such discoveries. Were they as important in the Taoist and Tibetan traditions as these men believed? How could Evans Ventz know that the translations were even accurate? Were the references and general scholarship of sufficient standard? And so on. Similarly with Young's commentaries, as well as adding his weight to their publication in the West, he was continually seeking the parallels in them to his own work. One may ask, therefore, was this a bias in the commentaries? Is it justifiable to psychologise Taoism and Buddhism? And so on. The problems were numerous and the reader needs to understand the context of these publications. They were translated and edited by passionate spiritual travellers in the Orient, not by modern scholars visiting libraries. The books therefore have a certain charm and originality, but scholarly and accurate they were probably not. Let us look very briefly at the historical outline of Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhism came to Tibet during the period of the Tibetan Empire, that is the 7th to the 9th centuries of the Common Era, and developed in combination with indigenous Tibetan traditions. Tibetan Buddhism then spread to the regions surrounding the Himalayas, much of Central Asia, Siberia, as well as Mongolia. In modern times, as a result of the Tibetan diaspora, it has even spread to the West. It has four independent branches with their own monastic institutions. Like all Buddhism, its main aim is Buddhahood, and it refers to itself as the Dharma of the Insiders. 
This implies one seeks the truth inside the nature of mind and not outside of it. In the 8th century AD, Tibetan Buddhism became the official religion of the state, even of the army. During the 9th and 10th centuries, the political unity of the Tibetan Empire collapsed into civil war, but Buddhism survived there. In the late 10th and 11th centuries, there was a revival of Buddhism in Tibet, and great Indian Buddhist teachers were invited into their monasteries. Tibetan Buddhism exerted a strong influence from the 11th century of the Common Era among the peoples of Inner Asia, especially the Mongols, who invaded Tibet in 1240 and incorporated it into their empire. Tibetan Buddhism was adopted as the state religion by the Mongol dynasty. Not the first example of a religion of the conquered being adopted by the conqueror. By this time, the Tibetan canon was created, often using wood blocks for printing. The first copies were kept at monasteries. The Bardo Thodol, for example, was constructed around the 1380s. The Bardo Thodol, translated as liberation through hearing during the intermediate state, became commonly known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But this book is only part of a larger corpus of teachings, the profound dharma of self-liberation through the intention of the peaceful and wrathful ones, which originated in the 14th century of the Common Era. In 1927, the text of the Tibetan Book of the Dead was one of the first examples of this type of Tibetan literature to be translated into a European language and to this day is the most famous example. Now, this larger corpus of teaching within which the Tibetan Book of the Dead is situated is what is called a terma text, that's T-E-R-M-A, which in Tibetan means hidden treasure. These are various forms of hidden teachings that are key to certain Tibetan and Buddhist spiritual traditions. Terma teachings were originally esoterically hidden by 8th century masters, such as the legendary teacher Padmasabhava, and to be discovered at auspicious times by treasure revealers, known as tertons. As such, terma represents a tradition of continuous revelation in these traditions. Their original hiding, for example, may have been to avoid persecution. A terma may be a physical object, such as a text, or a ritual implement that is buried in the ground, hidden in a rock, water, even in sky or space. But it can also refer to the wisdom in the mind essence of the Guru. And this is where its true place of concealment may continue in the Turton's mind essence. If the hidden or encoded teaching or object is a text, it may be written in the non-human type of code, that only the treasure revealer can decipher. Termas are not always made public straight away. The conditions may not be right. People may not yet be ready for them, and further instruction may need to be revealed to clarify their meaning. Often the Tertan himself has to practice them for many years. The tradition of Terma and Tertan are inspirations for legitimate cultural forms to continue in the Tantric, Buddhist and Tibetan traditions.
Sometimes terms are discovered by a master and reconcealed for later rediscovery. You will appreciate that Evans Vents and any discoverer of an esoteric text in the Orient may have felt especially chosen for the translation and revealing of discovered numinous sacred texts. These are certainly charged with mystery and have now commanded global interest and fascination. Young visited India in 1937-8, and although deeply impressed, he avoided holy men. He could not bear the idea of becoming captured by their mystical and philosophical system. He had to work it out for himself. We have noticed this characteristic in all his travels. He was fascinated and deeply appreciative of the cultures he encountered, but he often feared being absorbed or taken over by them, and felt a need to retain his European perspective and to address the problems and crises of the Western soul. Given the spiritual power of India, this was even more the case there. He was, in the 1930s, immersed in alchemy. In fact, on his ship voyage to India, he carried Gerald Dawn's book on alchemy, 16th century alchemist and philosopher, and immersed himself in that study. Imagine going to India and studying medieval alchemy on the way, instead of preparing yourself with Indian texts. Also, he felt a need in India to return to the West, which was in great danger and about to enter the Second World War. At this time he was fascinated with the Grail legend, for example seeing it as an archetypal search for the healing of deep wounds, both individual and collective. This limited his immersion into India. Yet he was fascinated with the Orient, recognising the depth and sophistication of its civilization, and he knew instinctively that the myths of India spoke of the soul and the path of transcendence in a way rather different to that of his own psychology. He was torn, I believe, between opposites of being drawn into that culture and his psychologising of it, which was an attempt, psychologically speaking, to retain control of his Western identity. As an example of Young's instinctive connection to India, consider the following dream he had shortly after a near-death experience in 1944. He dreamt of entering a chapel and seeing himself in meditation and realising, Aha, so he is the one who is meditating me. He has the dream and I am it. I knew that when he awakened... I would no longer be. Now, to my ears, this sounds pure Hinduism. For example, the myth of Vishnu lying in the cosmic ocean, dreaming infinite universes into existence. So, let's get to the material itself of this podcast. Although I have given a little background to Tibetan Buddhism and referred to the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it is not these texts that I intend to explore. That's just background. But rather, my focus is Jung's psychological commentaries on these texts. We're going to start in this episode with the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, and in the next episode we move to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation addresses the essence of the supreme path 
or Mahayana, and shows the yogic method for attaining enlightenment, for example, by experiencing the one mind, the cosmic all-consciousness. This meant enlightenment by a purely inner method, without recourse to the body positions, energetics, breathing, chakras, and other techniques associated with the lower yogas. Like so many Buddhist works, it concerns the path of transcendence. This higher method is attributed to the 8th century teachings of the mystic Padma Sambhava, already referred to. Additional material is in the book's introduction by its editor, Evan Svens, who describes concepts such as Nirvana. Part 1 of Young's psychological commentary is a general philosophical statement of the connection between analytical psychology and the Orient, a comparison of Eastern and Western modes of thinking. Young, as was his custom, points to the limits of traditional Western conceptions compared to the East. In the West, cognition is the chief function of mind, which in turn is a result of biochemical factors. It is a mental faculty. In the East, however, the mind is a cosmic phenomenon, the very essence of existence. The East bases itself on psychic reality, that is, that the psyche is utterly real and ultimately the only reality. It is fundamentally an introverted culture. The West, on the other hand, is fundamentally extroverted, even in its religious attitude, where it seeks salvation and grace from without. But Jung proceeds to show that, in his analytical psychology, the unconscious is taken into account, and he has defined it very different from the unconscious of Freudian psychoanalysis. So it's not just consciousness which is taken into account, but the unconscious. And this opens a vast world that resembles the religious attitudes and mythic beliefs of the Orient. For example, the transcendent function, a concept originated by Jung, is the communication that exists between the conscious and the unconscious. And this is parallel to the religious function so valued by the East. When consciousness is in conflict blocked, suffering, or in some kind of difficulty, this often produces a compensatory reaction in the unconscious, perhaps in the dream world. This gets through to consciousness, which in turn reacts and adjusts. The unconscious in turn produces more compensatory reactions. This back-and-forth process continues until, hopefully, change takes place and consciousness adjusts to the unconscious promptings which often involve a realignment of personality, so that its centre is closer to the self. This intermediate function between the opposites of consciousness and the unconscious is called by Jung the transcendent function. Jung says that the unconscious, for analytical psychology, is the matrix mind with the quality of creativity attached to it, the birthplace of all thought forms, and akin to the universal mind of the Orient. These thought forms, or archetypes, are omnipresent and timeless. So here, Jung argues, is the first part of a bridge between East and West. There is a mechanism, the transcendent function in in analytical psychology, by which the unconscious is listened to and this whole process is liberating, 
Jung feels that there is a parallel between Eastern self-liberation and the freeing oneself of personal complexes. He writes, By means of the transcendent function, we not only gain access to the one mind, but also come to understand why the East believes in the possibility of self-liberation. If through introspection and the conscious realisation of unconscious compensations, it is possible to transform one's mental conditions and thus arrive at a solution of people's complexes, one would seem entitled to speak of self-liberation. Jung argues that the extreme introversion of the East and the extreme extroversion of the West are both one-sided and have much to learn from one another. Perhaps the East could learn about personal complexes and how to deal with them, while the West could learn about the reality of the psyche. More importantly, suggests Jung, quote, I think it is becoming clear from my argument that the two standpoints, however contradictory, each have psychological justification, but both are one-sided when they fail to see and take account of those factors which do not fit in with their typical attitude. The one underrates the world of consciousness, the other the world of the one mind. In their extremism, the result is that both lose half of the universe. Their life is shut off from total reality and is apt to become artificial and inhuman. Close quotation. In summary, Jung has made a case that there is a bridge of understanding between East and West which lies in his own school of psychology. The unconscious is treated more mythically with an appreciation of its archetypes and the reality of eternal forms. The psyche here is as real as it is in Indian Buddhism. Moreover, the liberation sought for in the East has its parallels in Jungian analytical psychology, as exemplified in the transcendent function and the compensatory role of the unconscious. Having made this case for the advisability of each side taking account of the other, Jung proceeds in part two of the commentary, this, to my mind, is far less convincing because he limits the immensity of Buddhist mysticism and metaphysics by forcing it into the concepts of analytical psychology. He follows the text set out by Evans Ventz, commenting on a list of subtitles. The all-enlightened mind. The peaceful and wrathful aspects of the gods, which is also described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead the eternal, unknown, invisible and unrecognised one mind. The sorrowful consequences of not knowing the one mind. The consequences of being trapped by desire. The oneness and unity of everything. The great self-liberation. The nature of mind and the names given to it the timelessness and non-createdness of mind, the true dharma, or law, truth, guidance, natural wisdom of the mind, experiences of the great light and the path of nirvana. The fundamental problem, however, is that Jung equates the Buddhist concept of the one mind to the idea of the unconscious in analytical psychology. Now, while there are crossovers between these ideas, the Buddhist one mind is the underlying nature of the cosmos and of unlimited significance. Mind is not just the self, but includes consciousness and the cosmos. 
For example, Jung begins his commentary with a sentence from the text, quote, Therefore, the Trikaya is the all-enlightened mind, and says the following, quote, The idea of a universal mind is a commonplace in the East, since it actually expresses the introverted Eastern temperament. Put into psychological language, the above sentence could be paraphrased thus. The unconscious is the root of all experience of oneness, the matrix of all archetypes or structural patterns, and the conditio sine qua non of the phenomenal world. Unquote. Here, the one mind and the unconscious are presented as identical. I believe Buddhists would find this very difficult. Also, there is difficulty integrating the Buddhist ideas of no-self and the great void into analytical psychology. The self, for this school of psychology, is not an illusion, but the underlying principle of meaning in the psyche. Such an idea does not sit easily with Buddhism. Other examples could be given. For instance, the text talks of the great light, and Jung equates this in analytical psychology to the activation of unconscious contents by means of active imagination. But active imagination is not equivalent to meditation, and enlightenment is not the equivalent to rituals of rites of passage, similarities though there may be. A final example in the section on the great light, Jung begins by acknowledging the central role of light in mystical experience. In many initiation ceremonies, the experience of the light is preceded by descent into darkness. So, this is a rebirth symbol. He comments, quote, Rebirth symbolism simply describes the union of opposites of the conscious and the unconscious. Underlying all rebirth symbolism is the transcendent function. Since this function results in an increase of consciousness, the previous condition augmented by the addition of formerly unconscious contents, the new condition carries more insight, which is symbolised by more light. It is therefore a more enlightened state compared with the relative darkness of the previous state. Now this is a very, very forced parallelism. Experience of enlightenment is not merely more insight. I should add that Jung gave numerous warnings in this commentary about a false personality in Westerners when they adopt yoga practices. There is no doubt that in his time there were many followers in the West. I wonder what he would have said in our day, when, in the West, few people pray, while many meditate and practice yoga. I feel that when Jung wrote this psychological commentary to the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation in 1939, he was returning from his trip to India in a state of mind, determined to return to the West. However, by 1944, he was in a different state of mind with respect to India, and I suspect he would have written a psychological commentary on the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation in a different way. Jung was also on his own journey with respect to India and Tibet. In the next episode, we will examine the Tibetan Book of the Dead, another of the Evans Vents series. But this book was to gain international fame for the extraordinary nature of its vision the passage from death to rebirth. I hope you can join me.